Welcome to episode 111 with my guest Karen Kilgariff, recorded live at the Bridgetown Comedy Festival in Portland. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. 90 minutes of honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Please go there, join the forum, take the surveys. Uh, maybe even go there and go fuck yourself. I don't know if anybody's tried that yet, but I encourage you to go. I don't know why the, the hostility at you right out of the gate, but uh, let's embrace it. It's all a part of being human. Wow. <laughs> oh, um, I had an awesome time at uh, the Bridgetown Comedy Festival in Portland. Many thanks to everybody who put it on, especially the listeners that came on and supported not only um, the live Mental Illness Happy Hour show, which you are about to hear, um, but the listener uh, group recording that we did at Lewis and Clark College. Many thanks to Maddie, who uh, is a college student there, who helped set it up, and uh, and all of you. Uh, Shell, uh, thank you, Shell, for uh, driving me around and... Um, uh, Sal for giving me rides and everybody it was just it was so much so much fucking fun it's really really awesome I'm I'm beginning to babble now so I'm just going to uh, I'm just going to dive into the uh, what is this a, a show is that what we call it a show I'm going to kick it off with um, this is from the struggle in a sentence survey this was filled out by uh, Claudia she's uh, between 16 and 19 about her anxiety she says Feels like I'm about to jump off a really high ledge for the first time. Izzy, who is 16, between 16 and 19, about his depression, he says, when I wake up, my first thought is how long until I can go to sleep. Oh my God, I related to that so much when I read that. Oh, I want to give you a big hug, Izzy. I know that feeling, buddy. I'm, I've been going through that lately. Um, Sadie D, who is in her 20s, about her anxiety, says it's like being cut open and on display for those around me throwing up what i imagine being splattered on the highway would feel like vulnerable um about being a sex crime victim she says like i will never shame him enough or be powerful enough to show him i was right thank you for that this is uh from the shame and secret survey filled out by um a guy who calls himself uh jason uh w he is in his 20s was raised in an environment that was pretty dysfunctional um Never been the victim of sexual abuse, deepest, darkest thoughts. I am making up the entire world around me, including all friends and family. The worst part is I know this and keep making myself unhappy despite this. What are your deepest, darkest secrets? I was actively bulimic around age 15, and while I haven't consistently thrown up since then, I still have had numerous occasions where I went on bulimic runs lasting from one night to a few days. No one in the world knows this but me. I'm always so touched when somebody shares something for the first time with with us on the uh, on the podcast. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have a complete and utter fetish involving long women's hair. I almost 100% masturbate to images, videos, or thoughts revolving around long hair. I prefer it to be dark, straight, and silky. But if it's long, any type will turn me on. I have had. I have sexual thoughts about brushing it, stroking it, and literally wrapping my penis with it and fucking it. On top of this, I have sexual fantasies revolving around me being in complete control of the situation. Finally, I have fantasies of romantic love 
where we are two souls who are completely vulnerable and open with one another, and the sex reflects that. I think that's beautiful, and I hope I hope that you can find someone who can share that um, that turn on with you. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend uh, your fantasies? He writes, yes. But the beauty is that most women can't tell I have a hair fetish. Most enjoy having their hair stroked and played with so I can usually get away without saying anything. But I actually want to take it to the next level with a partner who accepts and enjoys this. Makes sense to me. Did these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, it arouses me even more to know I have a strong fetish. It makes me feel unique and special. The eating disorder makes me feel weak and powerless, and my drug addiction makes me feel both weak and simultaneously dangerous and interesting. And interesting. Um, thank you for that, Jason. This is an email I got from Lily, a listener. Um, she writes, Listen to the latest mental illness happy hour today and heard the guy from the survey say he'll never meet a woman as he's fat and has a small cock. Well, I just wanted to say that my boyfriend also has a tummy and I love it. He's sexy and it means I'm less hung up on my own body flaws as neither of us have model physiques. It makes us both giggle if our tummies slap against each other in a moment of passion. He's also not well hung. It's brilliant as I have a petite poof, so it fills me perfectly without being intimidating feels great and it's far easier to give a smaller guy great head my boyfriend is smart funny sexy and understands what mental illness is about which is a massive bonus to me fat and small cock are just labels the listener is using to beat himself up i bet he's lovely too i'm a lucky girl and i hope the listener meets someone that appreciates him thank you lily that's beautiful i and my tiny cock and my belly Thank you. Um, my underwear lately has, has, for the first time, the band around it is almost constantly folded in half, which I don't think you need to be a detective to know that that's your gut folding it over. And I'm just going to pretend that nothing is happening, that I'm not gaining weight. This... I'm going to take the, uh, us uh, into the uh, interview with this last one. This is filled out um, by a woman who calls herself Sunny Day, and this is from the Happy Moments survey. Um, she writes, I was 19 and at a Duran Duran concert. They were the band I was in love with in junior high. I was singing along in an extremely rare moment of not being excruciatingly self-conscious and uncomfortable around others. As I was going nuts, something happened in my brain. I mean, physically. It was like I could feel in color for the first time. I swear I must have had a surge of dopamine or serotonin or, or whatever it is, but I felt unmuted for the first time in my life. It was a glimpse into how life could be. Thank you for that, Sunny Day. I had a, I had a similar moment um, when I was in my 30s at a, at a dance club. I was doing stand-up on the road somewhere, and I went with the, the staff, out drinking, this is when I was still drinking, we went to some nightclub, and I was out on the dance floor with staff members dancing to Hanson's Mbop, and I had a moment of pure bliss, and I didn't judge it, and it was fucking awesome. And now the rest of you are free to judge it. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. 
Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. <laughs> that is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% event. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. so glad you guys are here. I, uh, I've been kind of agonizing over what to talk about when I, when I come out here, because I was like, I don't want to just start the show. I feel like I want to, because normally I'm just uh, in your headphones, and here, here I am in person, and I feel like I want to, there's so many things that I want to say to you guys, um, but I don't even really know where to begin. I woke up this morning, and uh, I had that feeling like Remember when you would sleep through your alarm clock and you were late for school or you're late for work and all of a sudden you just feel like a jolt of electricity go through your body? And I was like, oh my God, I'm doing a show. I'm doing a live show at 2 o'clock. And I was like, nobody that is coming to see the show wants me to feel that way. But this what's so fucked up about the human brain is it is, it is like the worst friend that we could possibly... <laughs> We could possibly have. Last night I did uh, I did a, a stand-up show, and uh, some of the folks that are here, uh, we hung out for a, a little bit afterwards, and and we were going to go do stuff. And it's funny because I think there were there was like four or five of us, and we're all so similar. I went I went up and I changed out of my uh, little costume that I did my stand-up in, and I came down and we were going to go see some stuff, and everybody suddenly just looked really tired. And we all looked at each other and went, we should just all pretty much go home, right? <laughs> and it was kind of sad and it was kind of awesome at the same time. And I got up to my bed and that's all, I, that's where I wanted to be was my bed. And I was sitting thinking why, and I started feeling lonely and I was like, I want to be alone. And yet when I'm alone, then I begin to feel lonely. How fucking stupid am I? <laughs> But the thing that I think that I love about wanting to retreat into my hotel room and the bed is I feel like I make fewer mistakes when I'm in bed. <laughs> there, it, there's something about it that just feels so safe. And I think one of the reasons I've been, I've been having anxiety about doing this show live is I don't get to edit it. I don't get to redo anything. And I'm afraid that I'm, that I'm gonna, make mistakes and I and I know that you guys are thinking that that's silly but it helps take the power out of it by me just saying that um, up front um, and by the way I have been uh, waging a war with my butthole since I've uh, <laughs> my first 24 hours here 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 is what I ate gyros espresso Fritos 
and a Snickers bar. I think my butthole might think that it owes me money. Um, there's something else that I want. Do you guys have any questions before I uh, kick into the to the next part of uh, of the show? Okay. Not that much. Sometimes I'll say something that that is funny among comics, but I worry about the listener who is maybe struggling with something and feeling alone and kind of outside the fringes of society, and I worry that it's going to really bum that person out and it's not funny enough of a thing to leave in there, so I'll edit that out. Sometimes uh, a, a guest will talk about maybe a sibling or something, and, and I just kind of get the feeling that maybe a couple of years from now, they're, they're going to wish that they hadn't said that about that person who didn't have a chance to defend themselves. I think parents are kind of fair game, because I feel like when you have kids, you know, you decided to bring that kid in the world, but you didn't decide to be a, a, a brother or a sister with that person. So sometimes I'll, I'll edit that stuff out. But uh, a lot of times the episode just kind of goes up with uh, with almost almost no editing. And sometimes I'll have to do it for time. Um, any other questions before I... Uh... Okay. What I thought would be kind of a fun way to, to kick the show off is um, if you guys could share some of your fears uh, with me. So if you wouldn't mind, anybody that wants to share a fear, if you could just come around here and, uh, and line up and uh, just share one of, one of your fears with us. Is that terrifying? Is that one of your... Um, well, I'll start off with a couple of my fears. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm afraid that I'm not going to see the light and the show is going to run over and I'm not going to get the things that I wish uh, I was going to get to and I will be filled with regret for the next 24 hours and I'll eat even more Cheetos and caramels and shit myself. Um, I am afraid that you guys have expectations about how this is going to go and I'm not going to uh, fulfill them and I will have disappointed you. What the fuck is going on here? Are we going to disco dance? Um, Somebody's waving to me in the back. Are we good? Okay. Um, would anybody like to come up and share? Would it, would it be more comfortable to you if you raise your hand and I came out in the audience and you shared it? Let's do that. Okay. Got your hand raised. Just tell me what your name and what your fear is and where you're from. Hi, I'm Melinda. I'm from Portland. Uh, I worry about tripping and falling and breaking my teeth. Somebody shared yesterday, and I totally relate to that one. Um, oh, it was, uh, it was Sal who has a fear every time she gets a drink at a drinking fountain, she looks around because she's convinced somebody's going to ram her head into it and she's going to lose her teeth. <laughs> yeah. Which kind of makes me want to do it to her. <laughs> uh, I'm Sarah from Portland, and I'm afraid of eating like tuna fish because it reminds me of old people in death. <laughs> I kind of get that on a certain level. I kind of get that. Do you ask uh, a server if the fish is fresh before you eat it? How about you? Um, I'm Katie from Seattle, and I'm going to try and start a family this summer, but I'm afraid that I'm going to spend so much money because we're using um, artificial insemination, that I'm going to use so much money trying over and over and over again, and I won't be able to, and then I won't have any money left to adopt because that's like thousands and 
tens of thousands of dollars. That's why I recommend just abducting. <laughs> Hi, I'm Andrea. I live in Portland. Um, I have a horrible fear of cotton balls. I, I can't touch them. I can't look at them. It, it's actually a known fear. I googled it. Other people have it. Really? Whose testicles were touched? <laughs> Thank you, by the way, for some of the some of these folks uh, right here came. We did a, uh, a listener group recording at Lewis and Clark College, and uh, I want to thank those people that are Shell over there in the back, and uh, Sal, and Andrea, and Nicole, and I think I think there's a couple more of you here. But it was uh, it was such a beautiful experience because um, they brought surveys and they talked about what those surveys triggered in them, and it was so nice because so often I instigate it by reading the survey and thinking what's interesting to me. But it was really cool getting to see what was interesting to you guys and what what it uh, brought up in, in your life. So um, I just want to acknowledge you. Um. Hi, I'm Kennedy. I'm from Portland. Um, I have a fear that if I die in a car accident, I won't be wearing clean underwear <laughs> and that people will judge me for that. That's probably true. <laughs> That's probably true. I got to say, if I'm, an, if I'm an ER guy and I cut somebody's uh, shit open and there's just a, a whole lot of ugliness right there, I'm going to crack a joke with, with my... Blake from Seattle. Uh, I fear I'm always like one day away from that giant cold sore popping up on my face. Oh, the shame that comes with that is just something else. Do you get cold sores a lot? It's like every couple of months, but I always panic like it's one day away. Just waiting for it. Yeah. Uh, who else? Anybody else have a have a hope? Uh, my name is Troy. I'm from Portland, and I'm afraid of birds, including real ones and animatronic ones. So specifically, the tiki tiki room at Disneyland just terrifies me. I fucking love that. I just love that. I love how irrational our fear, and not, not that, yeah, that's irrational. It's, I'm not going to beat around the bush. That's, that's fucking weird. It, but I totally get that. Uh, the Joker on Batman used to scare the fuck out of me. I don't, would anybody else, was anybody else terrified by Cesar Romero? I'm Lisa, I'm from Seattle, and I moved back in with my parents, and I'm afraid that um, I'm going to, Without Grey Gardens, my mom eventually. It's happening. The Bouviers, right? Wasn't that what Grey Gardens was? Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm James from Portland, and uh, the only thing that freaks me out is antique children's furniture. <laughs> is it because it's so tiny? It's that, and I when I look at like a, a children's antique rocker, it just seems like it might start moving at any second. Thank you for that. I'm Roy. I'm from Portland. Uh, I think I'm afraid of infinity. Like, the vastness of space and being dead both terrify me. I think forever terrifies me. You're too smart for this show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much for that. And I think, uh, well, give yourselves a round of applause. Your, your support. I know I say this a lot, but I want to say it because you're here in person, but your support of the show, you know, people will stop me and thank me and say, you know, the show means a lot to me. Thank you for doing it. I truly get as much out of doing it and getting the feedback from you guys um, as, as, as you do. So um, thank you so much. And with that, I, I want to bring out our, uh, 
Our guest, uh, you know her from uh, Mr. Show, and uh, she was the head writer for uh, The Ellen Show, and she's got an album out now called uh, Behind You, which is hilarious, and unfortunately her guitar didn't make it tonight. She was going to sing a song for us, but um, I don't think her guitar is going to arrive in time. Please welcome Karen Kilgariff. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can I say one thing super quick? Sure. Are we doing off the stand? Um, the guy that is afraid of cold sores, I've gotten them since I was 12. Don't eat nuts or chocolate, and get a prescription of Valtrex, and your life will be changed forever. Thank you for You're that. You're welcome. I, cold sores are the fucking worst thing of all time. Because they also come with it. Not only do they hurt, but there's the, the shame. There's some, oh my god, you're, I was once told in a carpool, when I was like 12 years old, this girl goes, what's that thing on your lip? And I was like, mm, the bones were, and then she was like, it makes your face look dirty. It's just like, thank you. Perfect. And that's when you should have said, I should stop blowing your dad. Grapes. <laughs> <laughs> and right now, someone in the audience is triggered. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, dad blowing. <laughs> it all, it's all going to come up today. Yeah. It's all coming up. Uh, so I, one of the things I asked Karen to do before she came here was um, to pick out some surveys that um, brought something up in her or she found interesting or triggered something that maybe she wanted to, to talk about. So um, you want to find one of those on your, on your phone? I Let shouldn't me. have brought that coffee, but That's all right. I hold cups of coffee like bottles, like I'm a baby, and I just always yeah. have to have it in my hand. Um, there is something very soothing about uh, having something to do with your hands when you're in a situation that you feel like, I don't know, you might be judged or people are looking at you. Yeah, or, like yeah, 200 totally, people are looking at you and yeah. you're talking to a microphone. You're being very generous by saying 200 people. It feels like the energy is 200 yeah. easily, yeah. if not 220. It's funny, I was, I was afraid... I was afraid that it was going to sell out, and then I was afraid that it wasn't going to sell out. <laughs> that, in a nutshell, is my brain. It's other people's disappointment. It's your disappointment. Yeah. It's then the, the whole festival's mad at you. Either yeah. way. Somebody's going to be disappointed, or I'm going to be disappointed. Yeah. yeah. That's but life. Either way, fuck my mom. Right. <laughs> it's so nice to have that base to come back to every time. Isn't it? What do, you, uh, what do you got? Which, which survey is this from? Uh, of course I went straight to body issues, because oh. hello. Um, so this is from the body shame uh, survey? This is the body shame, and they were all, I related to every single one of them. It's like a bunch of people going, I hate this, 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 and just like listing every possible, it's like Grey's Anatomy. I, huh. I, my fibula is too long, or whatever, everything, every single thing, which I relate to that. But this one person just put it together so perfectly, which is, I hate every single piece of my body. It is bad. I hate it. I'm told all the time by the voices, I'm ugly and deserve nothing. Hello, friend. <laughs> Hello, best friend. When, when did your um, hatred of your body start? When that girl told me the thing about the cold sore. No, um... <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't be joking about this. Um, <clears throat> no, but it's, <laughs> there, there is nothing that is that is off limits. <laughs> Seriously, I don't ever want a guest or an audience member to feel like, you know, they there, can't. There, there's something that we can't joke 
joke about. Um, well, because so. yeah, because it's not precious. I think pre yeah. like regarding it as precious is actually causing causes problems. I, I completely you, agree. When you hold your problems, like is it get away? We can't talk about it. It's like no, put it down and realize that everybody, a lot of people, have have similar issues. And mine, I think, started. My cousin, who was a heroin addict, um, once told me when I was walking ahead of her, and I think I was like 12, I'd, I didn't even think about my body until adolescence hit. And then it was almost like overnight, like my butt exploded backwards out of my body, and suddenly I just had a booty. And, but, you know, then, but I was also 12. And my heroin addict cousin was walking behind me one day, and she said, you got a black girl's butt. And I, we, there were no black people in my town. I had no idea what that even meant. And I was just kind of like, oh, okay. And that, it became this thing where I, then I started going like, oh, yeah, my butt is different than other girls in my class. It's bigger, you know, pants are tighter. And that, that kind of started that like, oh, I'm different. Everybody else is doing fine with their bodies here in seventh grade. Of course, of course I thought that. Everyone else is having a great time in seventh grade. Yeah. And me, all by myself, with my cold sores and suffering. Me and my butt and my cold sores are the worst. And then it just, and then it kind of like was, I kind of got over that hump. Also, that was the year that they started the president's fitness test. So in my grammar school, you had to go out with boys and girls onto the playground and get tested for your fucking Ronald Reagan, for your physical fitness. And uh, I was the first one for the first event, or whatever it is, and it was the, uh, it was the arm hang. And it was like the 15-second arm hang. And I literally got up and lasted like three seconds and dropped, and my whole class booed me. <laughs> because it was set up like we were going to win the Olympics or something. Right. Like if, you, if everybody got good scores, like, and then your school could go to the fitness final. I don't know what it was, but it was like I was the face of how our school was not going to make it in the president's fitness test. And that, I, it just was always that kind of thing. I also had a very skinny friend, my friend, uh, very tall, lanky, and we were both running somewhere once, and then she told me um, that, I, that I was, because I was heavy, I didn't have good momentum. <laughs> like, now I hate when I hear that word, even out of context completely. It's like, oh, momentum. Like, yeah. which I didn't, I don't even, I don't think that's true. You know, when you were talking about your uh, body shame and when that. When, that, uh, when that came to you, I, you know, there's a demarcation in, in a girl's uh, adolescence when she gets her period, but there should be like a demarcation in her emotional adolescence where she begins tying a sweater around her waist. <laughs> the butt flag is yeah. what we like to call that. Yeah. I, whenever I see a, a woman with the, a, the sweater tied around the waist, I, I automatically think that she's she's struggling with how she feels about her body. Am I, am I wrong in feeling that? Because it always looks so so defensive. It's, well, in my, I would say it's absolutely, I like to think of it as like, it's like the invisibility cape, you know what I mean? Or you're just kind of like, don't look over here, it's fine. Like, mm -hmm. nothing back there, don't worry about it. Because that's really what you're trying to do. It's like, it's like wearing a, a shift or something. It's just kind of like, let's just uh, make all of this one long, invisible area and you yeah. don't have to focus on it uh, was there another survey or is that the only uh the only one that you you pulled that, out well that i feel like that kind of hit a ton of things because it was it's just so like every it goes like that and yeah. the um 
which for the people at home, I'm scratching with the air like a cat. Um, but I, what I mean is it's so, it just obliterates everything. And the thing that really hit home was the voices tell me. The voices tell me I don't deserve anything, which is, to me, it took me so long to understand that all of these theories and ideas that I had about myself were the voices in my head that they don't know things. They're scared and they're damaged and they have all these theories that they think are going to protect me in the world, but actually they cause so much more pain and damage, um, and that they're just these voices. They're not, uh, it's not logic, which is oh, what I always thought it was, or reason, or I'm just trying to evaluate the world and do the thing that's going to help me the most. It's fear, mostly, and old shit. That's such an eloquent way of putting it, and, it, and it's so true. It's the, the, the very thing that we, we think is disciplining and protecting us, is actually making us feel alone, separate, different, and, and less than. Yeah. But it's union, so what are you going to do? <laughs> you can't bust that. You can't fight it. You can't. Not in America. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about maybe some seminal moments from uh, from your life. Where would be a good a good place to start with your story? You're you're of Irish descent. I'm of uh, Irish both sides descent. Oh well, let's talk about the drinking. Who okay. is who is the drunk? Um, me. I'm number one. Sweet! Yeah, I had all the drinks. Sweet. And how long has it been since you uh, drank? I stopped um, drinking full-time in 1997. <laughs> um, I didn't go to a program. I Did you I, do flex time for a little while? I did. I did. Yeah. And then I did the points plus system. And... Uh, no, I, the reason I stopped drinking is because I started having seizures. So I went full rock and roll with it. And um, so Seizures from not drinking or from drinking too much? Because well, I know when you withdraw from alcohol, people will have serious seizures. Yes, that's true. And uh, they don't know. I still have seizures to this day. I'm still on medication um, for it. The doctor, when I went to County Hospital, uh, when I... Always went, a good time. Such a nice place to be with everyone else that's sick. Um, but the doctor that was seeing me there actually said... Um, these seizures, it's, you don't have epilepsy, these seizures are from alcohol withdrawal. And I said, but I've never stopped drinking. <laughs> I thought that was a good thing to say to another person. And he also, he also asked me, how many drinks do you have a day? And I was like, I don't know, like eight or 12. And his eyes like, and when you're a comic, that's super normal. Like you go out every night, you do sets and you get super shit faced. Like that's what we did. So the, I was like, what is that? Is that low? Am I not cool? Yeah. Like, should I be Kurt Cobaining this a little bit more? Like, it yeah. didn't seem weird to me your, at all. Your idea of a drinking problem when you're a comic is that you have to pay for your drinks. That's right. That yeah. is a serious problem. Yeah. I'm going to talk to the manager about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so, when did you start drinking? When I was like 14, I would say. I always wanted to drink really badly. I mean, my family, they're all big drinkers, but. I would not call anybody in my family alcoholics because everybody always got their work done. I, no one ever, I can't remember any kind of humiliating experience. No one ever left me at school. It wasn't like that. It was like they were 50s cocktailers, and that's what all their friends were like, too. It's like they were, you know. They were just heavy drinkers. They were heavy drinkers. Yeah. Um, but they were, the, I mean, I feel like uh, the definition of like an alcoholic or per, is that person that's putting everything aside for their drinking and that was never the case it was just kind of like this is it was like it almost felt cultural or like this is what we do 
Um, but I took it and then just ran with it as far as I could. Give, basically. Me, give me some of the, the highlights or the lowlights of your, your drinking <sighs> career. Well, there was this one party. <laughs> the one, the first bad one where I knew like this, I'm just out of control and this is how it is. I went to a party in the summer between sophomore and junior year. We got invited to a junior party. And this party. This is high school? This was high school, yeah. And, uh, this party started at like three o'clock in the afternoon, which always a red flag if anyone's in high school. Watch those afternoon parties, cause pacing, you're not good at pacing when you're in your early teens, or at least I wasn't at all. And, uh, so we, we started like, there was like, um, we used to call it cuckoo juice, which is just like high C and then every liquor your parents have. <laughs> We called it plant food. Plant food? Yes, because we would hide it in the plants behind the house. And so we called it, and it was lemonade and then everything that they had, because you didn't want one single bottle to look like it had too much taken yeah, out of it. Yeah, right. You had to kind of go, it was like a, it was like a quilt of liquor inside, yeah. inside that beautiful pastiche of every possible thing you could drink. <laughs> Peach schnapps and Kahlua and, oh. So I got insanely drunk as fast as I possibly could, which was always how I did it. And um, at one point, it was fun, 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 until at one point I kind of came to, like, and I was lifting my head off my cousin Mike's white sweater. It was the 80s. Um, and there was two black eye marks. It looked like there was a set of eyes looking back at me. I had been crying on my cousin's shoulder in the middle of this party, and like came to out of the crying of like, what's going on? And then he was like, oh my God. And like some, some, you know, something very dark and bad was happening. And I was just kind of not there. And then another point, I mean, this truly in my head is like a, a slideshow because it was not, it was not continual time. This was just like, oh, this moment, then this moment, then this moment. And another one, which I literally, cringe at these moments to this day and this was in 1984 <laughs> but I still I'll this one gets me all the time where I'm I was laying in the bathtub in the bathroom and I wouldn't get out and then this boy that was in he was like the you know star athlete of our school came into the bathroom and was pleading with me he's like come on get out of the bathroom <laughs> come on Karen get up and I was like just pee just pee in front of me and it's just like one of those things where um it it was it's the floating above your body looking down at that picture. I mean, this might not sound so horrible. It wasn't stabbing babies or anything like that, but it's like that thing where... You weren't where bathing. You were just drunk. I, was not, I didn't draw a bath. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I was clothed, but laying in the bathtub like, this is what I'm going to do now. But it was like 5 o'clock in the afternoon. You know what I mean? Like Everyone else was still like chatting and flirting, and I was flat in the bathtub trying to get th this boy to pee in front of me. Uh, that was a bad one. And then at the end of this party, which was like at 10 o'clock at night, um, I had gone up to a boy who was a senior who I had a huge crush on, loved, and I said, can I talk to you for a second? You said what? Can I talk to you for a second? Okay. And he uh, said, sure. <laughs> we walked down the sidewalk a little bit, and uh, there were two really popular girls in my class, Mitch Loomis and Jackie Tom, who were great girls, really beautiful girls, and I walked him down the sidewalk, and then I turned around and said, I love you more than Jackie Tom or Mitch Loomis ever could, and then started crying again, and then he hugged me, and then my, uh, literally, this was awesome, because it was like in a movie, a uh, station wagon 
screeched up to the side where we were standing. My friend Christine threw the door open and looked at him and goes, sorry, and grabbed me by the sweater and pulled me in and we drove away. Thank God. Where was she five minutes before? But then, so the whole ride, me and Christine, I was like, I just told John Davis I loved him. And like laughing, but then I'd cry. It was all the, you know, the weird alcoholic bipolar craziness. But then we got dropped off at my parents' house. And the plan was we were going to go to my friend Christine's mom's house because she wasn't going to be there so we could go there and be drunk. My parents, on the other hand, were having a dinner party. Um, but Christine and I were too drunk to know that this was not where we should be. And so we get dropped off. And we it took us like 15 minutes to get to the front door. We were like, like it was like a bad sketch. We were falling into the bushes and like laughing and talking. And finally, I got to the front door and realized, oh, we're at our house. We're at like my house. So I looked at her and I go, straight to my room. And we throw the front door open. And we had, it was like one of those ranch style houses where the front door opens into like the living room and the, then the hallway to the bedrooms was over here. And so basically we f open the front door to my parents having a dinner party and run up the hallway as if they're, that they're just going to be like, oh, I don't know what they're doing. And we go into my room, shut the door, and <laughs> I just lay on the bed because I'm beyond shit-faced. And my sister comes, my older sister, two years older, comes, who didn't go to this party, um, too cool to go to that party, comes, throws the door open, is standing there and looking at both of us, and she goes, you guys are so fucked. <laughs> and then she leaves and then my mom comes in and she's trying to have a straight face but we're like we're just a bowl of cuckoo juice in my yeah. room basically the human form and I'm just laying on the bed laughing and Chris, my friend Christine is standing kind of in front of me and my closet I had the you know 80s bedroom the closet doors that like pull out like that and so she's standing there she goes hi Mrs. Kilgariff we went to a party, we just had a couple of beers, it wasn't a big deal. And then she sticks her arm out like that to put it like against the wall, like to be casual. <laughs> but of course it's my closet door, so she just falls into the closet. <laughs> and later on my mom told me, she was like, it was so hard not to laugh at you guys, you were so hilarious. Until the barfing started. And then we were both in the bathroom barfing for an hour. It was it was really bad, and my father. At one point, I caught my uh, my you know made made eye contact with, with my father in the hallway, and he was I'd never seen him that mad. He was livid. He was so angry, and we just I just that was kind of how I always did it. I blew it as badly as I possibly could then, and then the next day we had to go out and weed the garden. That was our punishment. And I did too the first time I got drunk. They made you weed? In the hot sun, yes. I had to pull weeds. Because they knew yeah. that would be the worst punishment yes. possible, is to go work manual labor. Um, and then my mom, I was so scared. I was still drunk the next day. I was that drunk originally. And then that night, I was just waiting for, you know, what my punishment was. Like, you're never leaving the house again or whatever. And my mom said, oh, no, there's no punishment. You just have to go to school tomorrow. And that was the worst punishment because I made it complete. I went to a school. Oh, she, she knew that you had made a, an ass of yourself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, well, I mean, like, we were, she knew, we were legless. There was no way we, like, pulled that party off. Like, we were superstars and then waited to be uncool when we got to my house. Um, 
And I told, I'm sure I told her, yeah, at one point I told her, I told John Davis that I loved him. And I went to a tiny Catholic school. So there was like, a, there was only, there was only 350 kids in my school. So everybody knew, you know, the hotline got lit up yeah. that night. And that, I was that girl for two more years. Oh. Yeah. That's a tough thing about uh, small towns or high schools or any, any clique is, yeah. It's, it's indelible. That's one of the nice things about L.A. is your, your fuck-ups can sometimes go unnoticed. Yeah, and there's always people that fuck up so much bigger than yeah, you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, so what was your relationship with, like with, your, with your family growing up? Was, it, was there warmth in your, in your house? Was it kind of... Uh, yeah, I was, I was very lucky. It was, a really, um, it was a really nice family. My mother had two alcoholics for her parents, so she did everything she could to give us the opposite of her childhood, because her childhood was, like, nightmarishly bad. Um, my father, so it was kind of like I came from both kinds of Irish. There's, if you're Irish, you know, there's good Irish and bad Irish. So there's, like, the fun, cool Irish with the red cheeks and the kind of, come on to our house. And then there's the bad Irish who are weirdly, like, super closed down and, and super judgmentally and bible and scary, and their houses always smell weird. So my mom had bad Irish family, and my dad had the good Irish family. So um, we were mostly, like, my mom was an only child, so we were pretty much all dad family-based, and that's kind of how we did everything. So we ate dinner together every night um, and talked and... You got to, you know, like that, that's kind of how I learned to like tell stories and be conversationally funny and stuff is that's, that's how my parents were. So there, there was a feeling of safety, like you could talk about what was going on inside you with your, with your family? Oh, no, no. We were still Irish. <laughs> we just had fun jokes and told stories. <laughs> but there was no... <laughs> so humor was the lubricant then? Yes, exactly. Okay. I mean, I could, I could tell my mom. My mom was a psychiatric nurse. So she wanted me to tell her everything, but um, I learned very quickly from my sister. Like, uh, it, it's not it's not a good idea. Like when we were little, I mean, I spilled the beans all the time when I was little. But it's that weird thing after adolescence where you kind of start to you, your parents seem. It seems like they don't get it. They don't really know what's going on. Like they have no idea what's really going on. So I can't. They won't understand. And then I also had a very early the rebellion where I was always telling my mom, like, I'm going to leave this town when I'm 18. Like, I had that big thing going, and I tried to be goth, which was very sad in my town. Like, I dyed my hair, and I thought that was, I'm going to smoke clothes. Like, you know, it's, it, I'm it, so what, punk what rock. were you raised in again? What town? Yeah. Petaluma, California. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what what was your kind of your, your feeling? How did you get an outlet for, for what it was that, that you were feeling? Because it, it, it sounds like it was something that was almost like genetic in you, that, that you know, the, the feeling of being an outsider, of, of not being... Sometimes it, it seems like kids get it, are raised by parents where they're really invalidated, but it sounds like your environment was not invalidating, maybe a no. little emotionally closed, but... So where, where do you think the, the self-loathing came from? I think it was, because um, I was always like the funny girl. Um, I, I always wanted atten attention, <laughs> of course, uh, very badly. I think my parents were really good at the basics of parenting, but they didn't, do, like kids these days, I mean, I've actually felt 
genuine, true rage-filled jealousy of kids when I see certain kids being raised. Where I'm just, you know, kids their their parents are like, "Well, what would you like to do?" And like that was, question was never asked in our house. You know what I mean? You'd be like, "Hey, can someone drive me in the roller rink? What are you talking about? Go outside." It was like everything seemed to be an impossible. Um, my parents acted like driving around town was this, like we were asking them for a thousand dollars. Like it was ridiculous. Um, so there was a little bit of that where it was always, it was kind of like go make your own fun or go do your own thing. But then how many, also. How many kids in your family? Just me and my sister. Okay. But I also always had that, uh, I was always trying to be funny and always talking and stuff. So I got that kind of like you're weird thing from a very early age. Which was just that kind of kid socializing stuff of like, you're weird, you're being weird. And so I just always thought, yeah, I'm, okay, I'm weird, fine. But I couldn't, I knew I couldn't control myself. I couldn't control my mouth ever. And so in high school, I think that was my outlet. I, um, the drinking, I always was trying, I always wanted to be drinking, but I was always talking and I was always gossiping. I was a terrible, terrible gossip. And I was always trying to be funny. Um, and then I, when I was like about a sophomore or, and maybe it was because of that party, but then I started eating and the eating, the eating, I gained like 40 pounds between like junior and senior year. Um, cause I was just, I wasn't popular. Like, I think we all had that kind of John Hughes in the eighties, like, okay, now I'm going to be Molly Ringwald and some Judd, um, I was going to say Judd Hirsch. What's the, which Judd Nelson. Judd Nelson, Judge Reinhold, um, you're kind of waiting for that moment mm -hmm. in high school, and it never happened for me. And then I was positive, like, okay, then now I'm, I am really weird. Like, there's, I'm gross. And so then I was kind of like, fuck it, I'm gonna eat Doritos then. And it was, an, it was so easy to do that. It was so easy to not try, and to, and to justify it in my mind as like, well, they don't get me or. Um, they're superficial. What I love is that, like, I think a lot of people do that where if you are not being courted actively, then the accusation to the other sex is always like, they're so superficial. Where it's like, I was in love with the guy that was like the quarterback of the football team. Yeah. Like, I certainly wasn't trying to be interesting or yeah. play my range. Yeah. They're, they're shallow because they're not validating my fantasy. Exactly. <laughs> where are the roses? <laughs> that was like, that was me all through high school. So then I just, I think it was that. It, I just took it in this like, well, then I'm a freak and kind of went and I'll dye my hair and I'll like the cure. And that's such uh, alcoholic thinking, too, because it's so binary. It's like there's no, you know, maybe it's awesome to be one of many. It's I'm a piece of shit or I am better be fucking prom queen. Exactly. Yes, there was no, I mean, that realization in, in therapy, when I was like 36, where my, my therapist would be like, well, things are actually much more complex than that. And I'd be like, ooh, yeah, it isn't, it isn't just all or nothing. It isn't, uh, I win or I'm the biggest loser of all time, yeah. which is like such an, it's not as glamorous when you have that realization. It's not, you know, where's the thrill? Yeah, the, the <laughs> ego isn't too good with nuance. It's, mm -mm, uh, mm -mm. So, any other seminal moments from your uh, your childhood or your, your adolescence that kind of stick out? Um, do they have to be hideously painful? No. No, it could be something as positive or transformative. Well, that's boring now, right? No. No, it's not. Um, I'll tell you this. When I went to college, this was kind of... I went to college and... Uh, in Sacramento, which was a terrible choice, but this was another thing where it's not, 
I don't want to sound accusatory because I really had it good in terms of family, but my parents did a lot of this kind of stuff. And maybe this was like um, an 80s thing, or maybe they just, this was their choice. But they did a lot of like, we're going to go on a cruise. Like, now that you guys are 17, we're going to go party. We're, we're going to go have our fun. And so my, oftentimes, my sister and I would just kind of like be home. I mean, that's when the, the big party started. We had a party so big at our house once, we had to call the cops on it so that people <laughs> would leave our house. Because it was so, we were like, holy shit, this is This, gone, this is crazy. Um, yeah. Uh, was there a pizza spinning on a turntable like in the John Hughes movie? <laughs> there was a boy stuck under a glass yeah. coffee table, and we yeah. didn't even have a glass coffee yeah. table. Um, An Asian kid in a tree? Yes. Yeah. Our movie, our, our, the life, the movie, forget it. Um, I think all of it. those 80s movies could be summed up with the, the movie poster of like Andrew McCarthy without a shirt, wearing a tie, in a tree, shrugging. Yeah. <laughs> What happened in the eighties? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was that was kind of always the goal. But the uh, the flip side of that, which they don't ever talk about in the John Hughes movies, was like I decided I picked my own college by myself because my friend in high school said, "Come on, let's be roommates." And I was like, "Okay." Like that, you shouldn't pick a college that way. You, I, there should be more guidance. I did, I did the exact same thing. It's so weird. And these mm. days, like, um, I have my friend Adrian, I remember them talking about, well, we're gonna go with Connor, their son, who is going to college that next year. We're driving down to Santa Barbara, and then we're gonna drive to Blue. And I was like, fuck you guys, fuck Connor. He's got all this support, and adults are going to help him make a choice. It's bullshit. I literally, I remember filling out the application like. This seems like somebody else should be here with me. Oh well. Oh well, I guess I'll drink a Budweiser. Uh, so I, that decision was it was a bad decision because Sacramento wasn't like it wasn't for me, and I knew it. Like as we drove up, I was just like, this is gonna be. But so I went to college there for a year and a half, and then got kicked out for having bad grades because um, I never went to class because, of course, I had no experience in being in the world. So you were busy having seizures. I would no, that, not yet. Not yet. That's the next chapter. Okay. Um, this was pre-seizure, still drinking, and going. Oh, I can do whatever I want every day. Well, then why would I go to school? Like none of I hadn't thought any of that through. Of like it's going to be on me to actually do the thing that people are paying for, and then I. I agreed to do by signing up to go here. So I just like fucked off every day and slept in and did what I, it, I loved it. It was like so exciting. Now what would you think when the thought would occur to you that my parents are going to see the results of this? They're, they will see my grades. What would you think when that, would that thought not pop into your head or would you just brush it away and say I'll deal with it when that comes up? Yeah, I brushed it. It was total denial all the time. It was kind of like, it's fine, it's fine. That, that voice, the it's fine voice has done me the most disservice in my life. It'll be fine, it's fine. Um, cause then it's like anything that I want to do is justified. And I remember when the, my final report card came that was gonna say, and, Congratulations for your .10 grade point average. You're kicked out of Sacramento State. Um, I just kept checking the mailbox every day because it was like summer. I'm thinking I was going to get it before my dad. But of course, he's watching me go to the mailbox every day. Like I'd never had a big interest in mail before that. It wasn't like I was always like, what? Look at these coupons they sent us. It was like never a thing. So suddenly I'm always there. So of course, he's on to me. And then he's like, did your report card come? And I'd be like, no, nope. 
It's so weird. There must be a problem in the office. There's such an endearing quality to your fuck-ups. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Because they're so dumb. They're just so kind of... But here's what I'll have to say. So that was very... Because I knew. It's like what you're saying. I knew I was fucking up. I watched myself doing it. I watched myself making these terrible choices. I did it anyway. I kept doing it. I got kicked out of college. And I mean, I had it good. My parents were paying for my education. They were paying for everything. I had, they opened up a little bank account so I could go get my monthly stipend. I mean, that's like the American dream. And I was like, fuck it. Like, I'm going to drink Keystone Light. That was my choice. And so then that they, alone should have been your bottom. I mean, that's just a horrible choice. <laughs> it's disgusting. Yeah. But the cans were lined or something. There was something about it that was, there was a great selling Some point. Some advertising gimmick. It was the queen of beers, I think. As opposed to anyway. Um, but the, again, when I they finally found out, uh, my parents just said, "Well, we love you, but you're cut off." So suddenly. I was in Sacramento with no money and no job and no school to go to and no means of support and now I was truly on my own and that was that was a humongous that was a big milestone moment I can still remember the feeling of sitting on the back steps of a house I just signed a lease agreement with my three other friends I was supposed to come up with like 300 400 bucks a month and sitting back there like staring at the sky like oh my god like what am I going to do um but then that's when I started doing stand-up because I figured I really wanted to do it secretly, but I was like, oh, I'll, you know, I'm sure I won't was the kind of thought in my head. And at that point I was like, well, I might as well because I don't have anything to lose. I don't have anything at all, so I might as well do it. And then because, I think because that was the first thought I had, like literally a month later, did you ever know Arthur Montmorency? Mm -mm. He's a stand-up comic. He started in Sacramento. He moved down to L.A. and he worked on the 70, that 70s show for the first couple seasons. Really cool guy, but very dark, very bitter, classic stand-up comic. And I met him randomly in a bar one night, like a month after that happened, the month after I was cut off and thought, you know, like I'm the biggest loser in my entire extended family. Um, uh, my friend and I were at this bar and I was talking to him like I was introduced to him and we were talking and talking and talking and finally he goes are you a stand-up comic and I go no and he goes well you should be and invited me to come do his uh, weekly show and it was it felt very like fateful and deep I, I was kind of like someone some random guy was kind of like you do this he sees me he sees inside me yeah he sees the secret dream I've always had yeah. what did that feel like it was fucking incredible, especially because after all that fucking up, I felt like, well, this is just who I am. Like, I'm only a fuck up and I only make bad decisions and I'll never get anything I want because this is what I do. So I don't, it's that thing. The voices would tell me, yeah, I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve to get what I want. Um, and I, how smart could I be if I can't even do these basic things? And in retrospect, I never wanted to go to college. I just did it. I mean, that's what you were supposed to do. And I remember thinking that when I was like 17, where everyone was like, I'm going to go to Berkeley. I'm going to go to Davis or whatever. And I would just think, I just want to go get an apartment and like smoke cigarettes by myself. Like that's what, it, that's what I wanted to do after high school. I wanted to not go to school anymore really badly, but I just did what I was supposed to do. Um, so it was actually kind of amazing because I think, I think things, 
kind of will out um, in a way uh, through bad stuff. I mean, through fuck-ups. You have to, you have to kind of smash through your life to get to something else. I, like, that idea that you're supposed to somehow make great decisions and glide through and be like, A, B, C, all the, you know, every, all the, everything's lighting up for me. Like, it just does not work that way. And it shouldn't work that yeah, way. Yeah, and, so, and sometimes I think the thing that unlocks the door to where you're meant to be is the failure investing a bunch of emotional energy in something that kind of egotistically you want uh, or you think you should want to do yeah. and then having that kind of fall apart and and then this other thing just kind of uh, weirdly weirdly comes in come in because yeah i think i didn't want to be weird i you know i didn't want to be the weird person i definitely wanted to be a stand up but i also wanted to do the thing my parents wanted me to do and i wanted to be like all my other friends that were going to college and stuff but if i was actually being true to myself which wasn't going to come for another 25 years or whatever but if i were then I would have kind of peeled off and been like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go into San Francisco and, you know, see, get a job and see what I want to do. But that, even the idea of being that independent, um, wasn't even a consideration at that point. So, what's, what's the next kind of, uh, moment in the, in your arc, personally or emotionally? Uh, <laughs> Well, I once I started stand-up, things went very well for me very quickly, which was good and bad. Um, because, uh, because I think it's that thing of, it really was what I was supposed to do. I mean, I, I believe that about myself. And so I, you know, would do comedy contests, do well in them or whatever, go. And I had a lot of support. Like, I met a lot of San Francisco comics who would come up to Sacramento for contests or for whatever. And so I met uh, Greg Barrett and I met Karen Anderson, and I met Pat Oswald and Blank Patch and all these people and kind of found my niche or whatever. And then I got an agent. Um, Margaret Cho was a good friend of mine, and she had an agent. She had me send my tape to her. So I got an agent, like from living in San Francisco, which is was kind of unheard of at the time. Like you would have to be down there moving and shaking and I so I I got an agent on it and she was like, you just have to come down here and start auditioning. And so I moved to LA at the same time as almost all of us moved to LA and then um started auditioning and this was this long ago. I ended up getting a holding deal at NBC for a hundred thousand dollars. Oh my God! Uh, which um, this is how they used to make TV. They would get talent and they would give you a big chunk of money to not take other jobs. Which sounds so like old studio system, because uh, these days they're like you're lucky if you can audition for something. The amazing talent is everybody's scrambling because uh, they just don't do it that that way anymore. So I had like these huge, great, amazing um, opportunities and chances, but I was still a huge drunk. Um, drink, drinking was really my passion and my priority. And then when I moved to LA, I realized I was way too fat. I was way, way, way too fat to be in the city limits. And so <laughs> just, I was taking up way too much room. And so, um, I got, uh. How'd you get through the roadblock? I don't know. Yeah. They must you have seen your belly me. In. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and wore a sweater around your waist. <laughs> I tied that invisibility sweater on. <laughs> so, uh, I, because in San Francisco I was fine to myself. I didn't, I never really thought about it. 
Um, but in L.A., of course, it's the, the land of the anorexic actress that doesn't take dressing on her salad, and, which was very foreign to me. And so after like six months there, I was, I, it was so uncomfortable. It was like... It was like having to walk around naked every day. That's how deeply uncomfortable with myself I was there. So I started taking diet pills. And this was back when it was Fen, before Fen Fen. Um, so it was just the upper diet pill. I went to a doctor in Burbank and uh, started taking them. And I lost 30 pounds in like a month and a half or something. Just what's, like, it, what's his name? <laughs> uh, he's, he's no longer a doctor. He, now he works in Guatemala. Um, it was the shadiest doctor's appointment I've ever had. It was hilarious. One of the nurses, uh, you know that part in Raiders of the Lost Ark where they open up the Ark of the Covenant and those two soldiers look in and then they start like uh, all of their skin uh, starts to peel off their body? That's what the receptionist looked like, but with a long red wig on. She was like a walking skeleton. Horrifying. Like when I walked in, I was like, oh, this is bad. And then the, the nurse that weighed you and like told you like what you, what your goal should be didn't have a bot, one of her bottom teeth was myths and missing. So it was like skeleton in the Ozarks. So I was just like, what, the, what is this place? And then I walked in to actually get my check, checkup to have the doctor give you the prescription. And it was literally, he was, the man was like in the shadows the entire, he was just like, Hello, nice to meet you. Like, lightly touch my wrist. Okay, here's your prescription. And then I'm basically on pharmaceutical speed. So I was, my heart raced constantly. I mean, that is the kind of amazing part about speed, I guess, is it's like you're constantly jogging but doing nothing. So I'd just be sitting around like, <laughs> turn the channel. I don't want to watch this show. It was, I was a lunatic. I was and, a lunatic. And drinking, which is such a scary combination. It's Well, I'm positive that's why I started having the seizures. I'm, I'm positive those diet pills had everything to do with it. Um, but yeah, I, uh, when I would go, so we'd go do sets, and I would, I would do my comedy, like I would talk really fast like this, and I would talk until I ran out of breath, and then I would, and then I would do, do something else. Like it was, it was really not funny at all. Um, that's not good comedy. And then... Afterwards, we'd go to a bar, and I would drink 11 beers, and it would just start to cut the tension for me. So, yeah, the drinking... 11 beers will cut a lot of things. You'd think. Yeah. You'd think. Um, so, anyway, that kind of, like, Coleman, you know, that went on and on. And at, in the midst of that, um, in my holding deal... So I'm like that, of course, now I'm doing that. Like the, the great irony of like trying to take diet pills to lose weight, to be on TV, to compete, to da da da. I get a part. I'm so crazed and drunk and on these diet pills that like one day I just skipped rehearsal. I just in my mind was like, I need to go for a walk and just didn't show up at the Drew Carey show. So of course I got fired. <laughs> it was like that, that kind of shit going on where there was no one there to be like, hey, listen, decision maker. Um, we need to look at these priorities really quickly. So I was, so, you know, I got fired from that. I, I was just a mess, basically. And then it kind of just, and I was a terrible auditioner. I was a terrible auditioner anyway, but then I was on speed. I would, I had this strange biker anger when I was in auditioning. So I was like supposed to be reading for the best friend, but I'd be like, yeah, well, I guess I'll see you later. And they'd be like, could you do it like a little uh, less angry? And I'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and then, God damn it! I wish there was footage of that. I know. God damn it! I know. 
It was, uh, and the funniest part about all of it was I had, I was the thinnest I'd ever been in my life. I was, uh, fine, you know, like I had lost all this weight and I was still considered fat. Like I was still considered the, a chunky girl or a overweight girl or whatever in terms of auditioning. And that was a big, uh, that was a big kind of, I, I don't want to say aha moment. Do you use Oprah phrases on your show? That was a huge aha moment for me. Um, because I just realized there was, there was no winning in that. There's no, you can't be thin enough in Hollywood and, and, and my body type, unless I have like my thigh muscles scraped off of my bones, I will never look like any of those people. It's just not how I'm built. And, uh, so it, then I had the seizures, then I stopped drinking, and then I started doing comedy about the fact that I am not built to look like that. And I think that's when I really found my voice in stand-up, is when I first started doing all that. And I, my comedy started to get really good, because it was, it started to get real and kind of true. Um. Thank you, Tiny Angels. It's time to talk about our sponsor, Hover. Hover.com is a hassle-free, stress-free domain registration and email management site. You can register in a couple of clicks. Uh, there, when, you, when you call customer support, you don't get handed from one person to the next because, as many of you know, that's where a lot of people get VD. Yeah, most people won't talk about it. Where'd you get those ugly sores? Well, I got it from being transferred to somebody's boss. Please support Hover.com for supporting this show. Uh, head over to www.hover.com slash mental to start enjoying the benefits now. Get 10% off your entire purchase with the URL. That's 10% off at Hover.com slash M-E-N-T-A-L. I like to think of Hover as the customer service place where you don't need a rubber. So back to more of my interview with Karen Kilgariff, or as I like to call it, the last episode Hover will ever sponsor. Actually, they're really cool, and they encourage me to be myself. So God bless them. Support them. And how did Mr. Show come about? Well, those, um, David and Bob were, Laura Milligan, my friend Laura Milligan, who was from San Francisco, started doing a night of comedy in L.A. called, it was called Tantrum. And it, looking back now, was the most incredible array of talent. So, like, Tenacious D did one of their first sets ever at that show. And Bob and David were workshopping sketches for Mr. Show. And, um, uh, you know, Mary Lynn Ricecup did one of her first stand-up sets at that show. Um, <clears throat> there's all kinds. Of, Will Ferrell used to do uh, this hilarious bit with two other guys. They they call themselves a Canadian performance art troupe called Simpatico, and they would come out wearing um, like speed skater unitards with the hoods, and they would just pass a ball really fast between the three of them to weird music, and then yell Simpatico. It was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. It was so fucking hilarious. And Molly Shannon did sketches there. It was like this really cool thing. So anyway, there was like a little group of people, or kind of, it was actually kind of a big group of people that all hung out that came out of that um, circle. And we also all drank together constantly and went to dinner every night. We were like this weird, big codependent group of people that hung out. Like a funny time. Manson family. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but we killed with comedy. Thank you. <laughs> Let me, let me see how we're, uh, we're doing on time. Uh, do you want to talk about your mom? Sure. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> and then I say no and drop the mic and walk off stage. How dare you? No, my, um, well, my mom, who was the matriarch, obviously, of our family, very, very intelligent woman, very, a working mother all my life, very, um, very feminist, very pro, uh, woman. She's, I think she's the reason I can do a lot of the things that I can do these days, um, cause she was this amazing example. She liked, she used to do stuff like in the 80s when there would be the terrible, you know, the, uh, economic stuff going on on TV, my dad would go, girls, you better marry a lawyer. And then my mom would go, bullshit, you better be a lawyer. And there's like a little sitcom. Um, but when uh, uh, my grandmother growing up um, had Alzheimer's and she uh, died of it. And she lived with us for a little while, which was terrible and the nightmare of Alzheimer's, if anyone knows. And I'm sure a lot of people have gone through it. Um, having like an elderly grandparent that loses their mind, you know, at the dinner table with you. It's really painful. And so, uh, my mom, and uh, Alzheimer's goes down, um, is inherited on, if you, it's passed through the mother. That's the gene. And so my mom got it early onset when she was 63. And so she kind of went from being this incredibly powerful, self-possessed, um, you know, she was the advice nurse at Kaiser for like 15 years. Like when you called up because you were scared of the rash on your arm, it was my mom was the one that was like, honey, don't worry about it. Put some cortisone on it. You're fine. Like she was that person. And she got uh, early onset Alzheimer's and basically, um, lost her shit. And, uh, is that's, that's what we, the past 10 years have been horrible for that because it kind um, if you've ever gone through, having a relative with Alzheimer's, it's kind of like they slowly get replaced by someone else right in front of you. And it goes, it's very slow and it's very subtle, but it's horrifying. Like I, I compare it to, um, it's like the slowest real-time horror movie that you, being in one. So it's like the guy's coming at you with a knife and you're like, holy fucking shit, a guy's gonna kill me with a knife. And then he's like just walking super slow. So you're like, okay, that guy's, he's coming. He's gonna kill me. And then he's just still coming. And after a while you're like, all right, get, bring the knife. I'm ready. You know, stab me because the, it's so fucking painful. It's so weird. And you can't, you, like, you get mad at them, but they don't know what they're doing. And it's like the, it, it our whole family kind of, got completely broken down. Um, in the middle of it, my dad got, uh, had melanoma and he had to go through radiation for, oh my God. for cancer, which was super crazy. My, my sister and I just had this thing because we were so Irish and the way we were raised where it's not like we would get together and hug and cry and talk about it. We just kind of like really roll our eyes at each other. That was the way we dealt with it. We're just like, can you fucking believe that? But that, that's all we ever really said. And that's why I got into therapy, because I, at the same time, was head writing on the Ellen DeGeneres talk show, which was like, had just launched. And I had never had a job like that. It was my first, um, it was my first job managing adults. Uh, and all the adults were writers who were friends of mine in comics. And that was so difficult and so stressful. And then having that stuff going on at home that I was so miserable, and I was such a miserable person. I was, I was, uh, I was a tough person to be around at that time. I just was always, um, I was always feeling like a fraud and a failure at work. 
which is terrible. If you ever have a boss like that, it's those kind of people you can't tell them anything because they know everything already, even though they're wrong. Um, they're, you know, you try to say, hey, here's my input, and they're like, hey, yeah, yeah. Those are the people that are like in deep fear of being a fraud or that they don't, they can't take that, um, any input because they're so afraid to lose what they have. And that's, I, so I had that going on and, and my mom and, uh, so I finally, when I realized I would, by the day of the week, hate a different person really deeply, it would always be like, oh, he's, I'm going to kill him. He's the reason, da, da, da. And then that would go away and it'd be like, Tuesday, she is such a bitch, I can't stand her. And finally I was like, okay, it's, I'm the common denominator. Like, this is about me. And I went to therapy. And the first therapist I got, <laughs> my friend was a therapist, so she's like, I can recommend people for you. Who, what kind of person would you like to go talk to? And I said, I really need to talk to Olympia Dukakis. <laughs> and <laughs> she was like, okay, um, I think I can do that. So I, the first woman I went to was this older lady who did look a little bit like her. She had gray hair and whatever. But she was like, why, why do you need to talk to a therapist, Karen? And I was like, well, I've got this stuff going on in my... And before I had like the first sentence out, she's like, and how does that make you feel? And I was like, okay, I need to take the mic for a while. Like you can't, you, I just need to talk. And she was really weirdly trying to drive it all the time. So I stopped going to her. I only went to her once or twice. And um, then, I, then I was, I almost had that thing of like, I can't do therapy. Like it didn't work that time, so I'm never gonna try again. It was almost like being rejected yeah. in and, dating. And, and so many people that have never tried therapy don't realize that the vibe of the therapist has everything to do with how successful it will be and that there's a thousand different vibes and energies that in a good therapist, you will just be able to melt in front of them and all the stuff that needs to come up will come up naturally. Yes. So did you find that in your second therapist? Yes, and the weirdest thing was I just went on the... It was like, basically I was like, well, fuck it, I don't need therapy. And then, of course, I was back at work. And in two weeks, I was like, you know, again, having a nervous breakdown. So I just went on the Psychology Today website and looked under my town. And there was like a lady that seemed nice. And the first meeting I had with her, first of all, I loved her furniture. So I was like, yeah, this is going (laughs) to... Yes. A nice seafoam green mid-century. And then she was just, she had this thing, like, it's so hilarious because she's, she's really brilliant and she's really human and she's really right there with you. And she does a lot of stuff like you tell her a big hideous story, like all the shit I've told you guys today. And then she'd be like this, that seems like a lot to hold. (laughs) And that is like, no one in my life had ever said anything similar like that because it's like it's like compassionate and it's like you know it's empathetic but at the same time it's not like i'm going to solve it for you so you stop talking it's not it you know no one she's not trying to do anything you felt heard and felt, I felt heard and held held which is hilarious i love saying that to I people i totally i totally know that feeling and it's so fucking awesome yeah that you don't have to scramble around for a big answer that it doesn't work that way it's like you just have to barf and barf and barf and get it all out and it's like having a stomach flu for for me now like eight years just keep on barfing you keep on barfing and it just gets a little bit easier and then you can kind of see like the thing that's amazing to me is those voices back to the voices in the head where she has made it so clear of just like identifying that these voices it's kind of like a you know, the King Arthur's Court or the round table where each knight is trying to do something for you. And it, they're trying to be on your side, even though sometimes it seems so 
against you. So there are voices that are saying, you know, don't go out, you look fat. And she would say, like, well, what do you think they're trying to protect you from? What do you think that voice is trying to protect you from? What do, what do you think the fear is underneath that? So instead of being like, I'm crazy, we have to get rid of these voices with pills or something, it's like, no, let's actually figure out what the real fear is underneath that, where the risk is for you. Yeah, it, it, it's when, when therapy is good, it feels I like... I love a beer right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that crack sounded so good. <laughs> It's get, that first sip is going to be so good. It's, it's all a, bubbles. It's a Keystone Light. You don't want it? <laughs> they serve exclusively Keystone in Portland. <laughs> That'd be so awesome. When therapy is good, it feels like somebody is holding your hand, walking down a dark tunnel, and just kind of shining a flashlight when it needs to be shined. But they're not—they're not dragging you, and they're not pushing you. It—it it feels kind of gentle, but ever so slightly kind of prodding, you know, ever yes. so slightly of just, just going to nudge you an inch this way. What do you think? What do you think about that? And you, you get to feel like you're discovering it. They're helping you discover it. They're not telling you something they read in a book. Good therapy feels like they're helping you discover something good that has always been inside you yes. but for some reason has been muted. Yes. Well, yes, because I feel like you know, and depending on your range of issues or whatever, but for me, it just felt like it wasn't that I didn't know, like I know where I wanted to be, which I feel like I'm the closest to it I've ever been in my life. Like this, and this weekend in particular, it's, I'm having the greatest fucking time. I'm, I, I'm certainly not thin in any way that I thought I was supposed to be when I was in my 20s, and I could give a shit. I just could, I've eaten so many voodoo donuts this week and I can't even tell you. What's right? your, do you have a favorite? Um, well, anything with a bunch of cereal on top of it. Like, fuck. Yeah. Uh-huh. Do it. But I feel like there was a time where it was just like, don't eat that. I'm going to eat it. Now I'm disgusting. I'm a, I'm like, a bad person. It's yeah. like that crazy ping pong in your mind. It's just so pointless. It's like, you know, you, I don't know. It's, she has helped me realize that like all this stuff is, is within me, it's within my power. Whether or not I choose to make decisions is is my own. And it isn't bad if I don't. Like I remember talking to her where I, I smoked a lot of pot in that period of time I was talking about because that's just, I couldn't figure out what else to do with myself and I couldn't drink. And um, I told her that finally one day and I, because I wasn't talking about it to her because I felt like she would be like, you have to stop doing that. And her answer was, everybody needs a little bit of oblivion. And I was just like, I love you so much. <laughs> you are helping me so much. And it's like true. It's like you, in my mind, I have all these things of here's how you're supposed to be. Here's how you're supposed to do it. Blah, blah, blah. I'm so wrong. I couldn't be more wrong. So that idea of like, I'm smoking pot, but I shouldn't. It's like, just en- if you're going to do it, enjoy it. Like, don't do it and beat yourself up for right. it. Like, then, then you just get nothing ever. Yeah. That, that's such a, a, a beautiful experience uh you know what what you're describing i just uh i love i love hearing stuff like that um where do you feel like you're at uh today with with stuff do you feel like you're in a lot of self-acceptance i mean you seem you are a different person than i bumped into you at a party i think it was at dave rats maybe like like 12 or 13 years ago and um we had never officially met and i i think i might have introduced myself but you scared me. You you intimidated me. <laughs> yep. And um, 
That was my thing. You should. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I was really yeah. good at it, actually. Yeah, you were really intimidating. That was my defense. It was actually, it, to me, it felt like that was the only thing I had. That was the only card I had to play. So it was, and that's that vulnerability thing we were talking about earlier. The idea of, I could never be vulnerable or nice to people because in my mind, you can't be a nice fat girl. That's the saddest thing to be. So I was going to be the girl that scared scared you away from that area of the room. Like, what? What is the benefit of that? Like, I know I never went back in and said, okay, so you can do that. Now what? Like now, now you're smoking in the corner and everyone thinks you're a big bitch. What do we get from this? Like that? I never thought that through in any way. Maybe the donuts are all yours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> get away their money. But. Uh, yeah, so I, my thing was just, I could never let anybody know that I wanted, I wanted to meet you. I, I saw you on TV. I thought you were the fucking so hilarious on dinner in a movie. Like, I, I swear to God, right? Because I would watch that and like, what's more irritating than interstitial shit during a movie you're trying to watch? Or you're just like, oh my God. And they usually pick people that are so terrible. And you guys were so, I mean, I could tell you were riffing. I could tell you were, you were making stuff up on the spot. It wasn't, it wasn't all scripted. And I had so much respect for that. Like, you know, the comfort you had on camera. Um, so I'm sure I was thrilled to be around you. And I think a lot of people do this where it's like, you see the person that you like or you admire, and then you're kind of like, I have to figure out a plan. Like, how am I going to get them to... I can't look as pathetic as I feel. <laughs> exactly. I can't stick my hand out and say, you're great, which is pro what everybody wants in the world. Yes. Instead, you're like, I'm going to say this thing loudly, then she'll turn around. You know, like, there's a, I, I do that constantly. So my thing was always, because I was so intimidated in LA, I was so, you know, so insecure and all these things. My thing was, I'm going to be the person that acts like they hate everybody because everybody's always kissing everybody's ass. So that's going to be fascinating because like, <laughs> right? Famous people are going to be like, why is she mad at me? How else am I going to break through if I don't, you know, do, if I don't do that? And I have a lot of people, t tons of people tell me that. We we're just like, oh, the first time I met you, I thought you hated my guts. I was like, yes, that's right. You played perfectly into my plan. Well, then when, when we did uh, the live walking the room uh, and we met backstage after having not seen each other probably since that, that party, your demeanor had completely changed and I felt so safe around you and I just wanted, I wanted to give you a hug. I just wanted to say, oh my God, you're, you don't hate me. You, you are, you know, uh, not somebody that I should be afraid of. Oh, the porcupine lady lost her spikes. Yeah. That's, and, well, and I think that's the, my lesson was going through the, the stuff with my mom, going through that stuff at work or with that job that made me feel so nothing. Um, what I realized, like, on the other end of that was it's so good to go through terrible things. It, it, I mean, for me anyway, it was the best. And maybe because cause I was kind of spoiled all my life and had it really good. And I didn't, I thought I knew, like, oh, I'm, I have angst. And it's like, I had no idea what angst was. And then I really went through serious, terrible shit. And then you realize, then you're just so fucking grateful. Then you're grateful for a smiling face. And you're like, any moment that you have that's nice or that you have friends or whatever, like I just had that, I mean, it, I, I don't want to judge it. Right now I want to say it sounds cheesy or whatever, but it isn't fucking cheesy because it's actually the process that I think people go through their life like resisting or finally falling into. And I resisted it for so long because I was like this, 
It was like I had a bunch of plaque on me. I was just so stiff and tight and I controlling and you, you needed to see me this certain way and I needed to be strong. I needed to be strong. That was what it was. You couldn't see me as any, like, you needed to be scared of me. You needed to fear me. You needed to think I was hilarious. But other than that, like, you, nobody could come in, which is so terrible and lonely and totally miserable. So, so lonely making. And, you know, the irony is real strength is just putting yourself out there unapologetically and saying, I want to be loved. I want to be accepted. Well, and also because then you can, then other people that kind of feel that same feeling or whatever, when you can kind of just hang out. And I also realized, because I stopped doing comedy when I was working on that show completely, and I was just like, I wasn't that good at it or whatever I was. It wasn't meant to be. And I just basically shut down an entire, like pretty much the core of myself to go do this other thing, like to make money basically. And I made myself so miserable um, by doing that, by kind of just dismissing, like, oh, comedy, who cares? Anyone could do that. Which is like, no, actually, not everybody. I had breakfast with Dana uh, Gould this morning, and he said the exact same thing. When that, he was that, working that, on The Simpsons? When he was working on The Simpsons. Yeah. And at first he was like, I've got, you know, got this, making all this money, and I'm working on this popular show. But there was a part of himself that wasn't being able to be expressed. And, and so he started do, going back to doing stand-up comedy. And part of himself was judging himself, going, why am I doing this? I've been given this great opportunity, why am I walking away from it? But he could feel that there was something inside of him that still still needed to be e- expressed. Yeah, because it's not, um, for me, it's not like I made that decision. Like, I was going to be a doctor, and then I became a stand-up comic. Like, it's what I wanted to be from really early on, and I got to do it, and it became my, it is kind of my identity in a way. Like, not in the way of, like, I can't stop riffing, but in the way of just... I love comedy. I love to be in that world. And to be away from that world made me in, insanely miserable. And so to to be able to get back uh, to do it and to do it the way I want and to know that it means something to be a woman on stage speaking her mind, being as she is, and kind of being like, right, everybody? Like, it does, it's not that common anymore. I, I, see, I think a lot of people, a lot of female comics feel this need on stage to be, to kind of um, please the audience in a way or, you know, be something, be, be, uh, talk about blowjobs or be, you know, be like the boner girl or whatever. Right. And you don't see as often people that are just kind of standing there like, well, here's actually my opinion. Here's my point of view. I'm, an, I'm a human being, aside from the hand job um, abilities that I have, which I'm not in any way deriding because everybody needs those. But I think it's, I realize the importance of it, I think. Uh, well, we just got the light, so we're going we're gonna to have to wrap things up. But first of all, I want to give you a, a round of applause and thank, thank you. you so much. Thanks. Is, is there anything that you would like to, uh, to plug? Your album is, is great. She has a five-song uh, album out called Behind You. Behind You, and uh, that's on Bandcamp. Um, Bandcamp.com? Bandcamp.org. Okay. No, no, it's .com. Okay. That was just internet humor. Yeah. <laughs> Can't help it. Yeah. Um, and then... You have a beautiful voice. I'm, I'm kind of... Bum that your guitar didn't make it. I know, you guys, I left my guitar in Moshe Kosher's car. (laughs) We were up till five in the morning last night. I fucking love this festival so much. We're having the best time. But yeah, when I got up at uh, 1.15 today Mm -hmm. and then realized I had no way to get a hold of Mm -hmm. my guitar, Mm -hmm. I could walk over there and do it at a cappella number for you. 
<laughs> First of all, I could stay here and do it. Uh, I was totally joking. Yeah. So I could jam out some Manhattan transfer for you. Well, you know what I'm thinking since we're, we're running short on time? Um, did you bring any loves to, to uh, share with us? What do you, what do you a li- mean? A list of, of fears. Didn't I ask you to bring a list of fears and loves? No, but I I, I'll to do love that. to do it, yeah. Okay, would you want to uh, riff on some? Because what I'd love to do is have the audience share their loves, too. So I'd love to alternate between you sharing a love and audience members I'd sharing love to a do love. That. Can so, I say, wait, when everyone yeah. was saying their fears before, yeah. my fear is getting caught in a place where I lose my pants somehow and having no one that has the same pants size as me. <laughs> and that was the thing. Like, seriously... I would never date a guy that had smaller pants than me because in an emergency situation, I wouldn't be able to slide his pants on and run out the door. And that's a serious thing. And if I'm around skinny girls and I, I like start to get a little bit of like planning of where are the closest pair of sweats that I could find, where if there's a flood or a fire, how am I going to make sure I have pants? That is awesome. That is awesome. So uh, anybody that wants to share a love, would you just come up to the stage and one at a time we'll just have you come up and, and uh, share a love with Karen? Don't be, don't be afraid. It can be the love of me also. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. Do you want to you do your uh, first one? You just keep your mic and I'll, and I'll give, them, okay. uh, give them my mic. No, you go first. Okay. No, no. Okay. I, love, I love love bartering. Okay. So. Uh, and give us your name and where you're from. I am Sal and I am from Portland. North Portland. Um, uh, it makes a difference. Um, <laughs> the St. John's neighborhood. Ooh. <laughs> awesome. Uh, my love is when we get our first real snowfall, and it just totally makes the whole world quiet. I love that one. Thank yeah, you. That's good. Karen? I love the crack of a beer. I think I said that already. I'm sorry, but I really, I really, I love a crack of a beer, and it drives me crazy in movies because they never do the sound effect right. When people drink beer, you can hear the water just slap back down into the bottle, and like you, you sip a beer out of a bottle, that fizz sound. That I'm such an alcoholic. Okay, you go. Hi, I'm uh, Brian. I'm from Idaho. Um, I love uh, being in my element. I love seeing when other people in theirs and when they find the things that they're good at. Um, Paul, love the show and love how it's taken me out of that zone where I'm afraid of failing as well as succeeding. So, thank you. Thank you, Brian. I lo- I don't mean mine aren't all going to be about drinking, but my I really love being at a bar or a club and seeing. Uh, kind of a middle-aged, shit-faced, drunk guy dancing by himself. That's my... I could watch it for hours. It's my favorite. And sometimes they'll have a fedora that they'll do stuff with, like try to flip down their arm or whatever. It's, it fills me with joy. I'm Vanessa, and I'm from Seattle. And my love is... I love watching my dog swim, because that's when he's the happiest. And I, it just fills my heart. Just so much joy in that. That's wonderful. Thank you. I just got a dog. Um, my dog, George Lopez. She's a girl. And uh, I never had my own dog before. And I, I 
I can't believe how much I love her. I can't believe how much I now understand dog people. And I really love watching TV at night, and I'm laying on the couch, and she lays behind me, like facing the other direction, and we sleep back to back. I love it. I love when my dogs get excited that I'm going to take a nap. Like, well, like we're going to accomplish something, yeah. <laughs> the three of us. Hi, I'm Lisa, and um, I love that feeling after you roller skate for a really long time, and it still feels like you're rolling. Thank you, Lisa. That's a good one. I love roller skating. Um, I was going to say, I love when something happens in public. Like, uh, for example, like when there's one super obnoxious person at Starbucks, and then they leave, and everyone else has a group moment of hating that person after they leave. Right? And it's not like, I don't, because I don't think it's mal as malicious as it is like when you look around knowing everyone else feels exactly the same way as you, of like, fuck her! That's so, uh, that's my favorite. Thanks, Karen. Schmitty! Hi, I'm Mike. I'm from Los Angeles. Yay. Uh, I like seeing my friend Paul, I love seeing my friend Paul happy and in his element doing this show. And, uh, yeah, go ahead, why not? <laughs> And I love Karen Kilgariff. I particularly love your Twitter feed. You're hysterical. And one tweet in particular, you once tweeted, I never realize how much I hate comedy until 10 minutes before I'm supposed to do a show. <laughs> Loved it. As a performer, I could not have favorited it a hundred more times. <laughs> Thanks, Schmitty. And what Thank else? you. We're, we're going to uh, end on that one because we, uh, we are out of time, but I want to thank you guys for, for coming out. Um, it, means, it means so much to me. And uh, stick around because Mike is doing uh, his live podcast, The 40-Year-Old Boy at 4 o'clock. It's a great, great podcast, and I know he's got a lot of shit to talk about because Mike's going through some stuff. Um, but uh, another hand for, for Karen for coming out and sharing. Thank you. Sharing her stuff with me. And I want to thank you guys for coming and supporting the show. And uh, thank you. Thanks for listening. And many, many thanks to uh, Karen Kilgariff for being such a such a great guest and all the people that, uh, that showed up and supported it. Um, before I uh, take it out with some surveys and uh, a listener email, I want to remind you guys that there are a couple of different ways to support the show if you feel so inclined. You can support us financially by going to the website, metalpod.com, and making either a one-time PayPal donation, or my favorite, a recurring monthly donation. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month. Once you sign up, as long as your credit card is valid, you don't have to do anything. And uh, I have some people that are super nice that even um, have uh, monthly donations as much as 25 and one really special person that donates $40 a month. Um, thank you, Amy. Um you can support the show by um, shopping through our Amazon portal. When you uh, want to buy something at Amazon, just go to our homepage. It's on the right-hand side about halfway down. You can also support us non-financially by going to Amazon, um, to uh, iTunes, giving us a good rating. That boosts our ranking, brings more people to the show, and you can help spread the word through social media. Um, that also helps boost our, uh, our visibility. And I want to take this time out because I've never... Well, it's been a while since I've thanked you guys, but um, the people that have signed up to, this is another way that you can support the show, people that have signed up to transcribe episodes. It takes about a full day for somebody to transcribe an entire episode of this show, and um, I just want to read the names of the people who have done that. Um, Jennifer Lycano, 
uh, Deborah Norby, um, Jennifer uh, again and again, Sarah Coletta Heald, Sean Bryan, Nicoliakis, Sean Bryan again, Sherry Sly, Wendy Chow, Wendy Chow again, Wendy Chow a third time, Sherry Sly, Amy Tennant, Lindsay Price, Keely Weir, Lindsay Price, Lindsay Price, Lindsay Price, Lindsay Price, Lindsay, new fucking rock, Deborah Norby again, Jen Jeebus, Emily Galashote, Lise Prebay, Emily Galashote, Emily Galashote, Emily Galashote, Emily Galashote, Keely Weir again, and Jenna Gaines. Thank you, guys. Those are all the episodes that have been transcribed, and there are people currently transcribing other episodes, and I appreciate it so much, and I'm sorry if I butchered uh, any of your names. Um, let's jump into some surveys. This is from the Shame and Secret survey. This was filled out by a guy who calls himself Fraud. So you know it's going to be teeming with self-confidence. He's straight. He's in his 30s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional, never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thoughts, pretty tame, just sex with a variety of different women. I'm married with three kids and would never act on that. Deepest, darkest secrets. I've been feeling down and depleted lately, and after a coworker just tore into me a few weeks ago, I had nothing inside of me to even attempt a defense. I was working out of town at the time and went back to the hotel and carved the word fraud into my left forearm. I used to cut myself a lot as a teenager and into my 20s, but hadn't done it in 15 years. Cutting myself again felt really good at the time, but I have come to really regret it. My seven-year-old daughter noticed it one day and asked me what it meant and how it got there. I ended up just dismissing it and changing the subject. My dental hygienist also noticed it when taking my blood pressure the other day. She's normally extremely chatty, but didn't say a word after she saw that carved into my arm. Since then, I've just kept the scar covered with a bandage so no one notices. It's extremely humiliating, but I also feel like I deserved it. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Um, just being able to please a woman. Um, I'm not able to please my wife. And as a resort, we haven't had sex in almost two years. I've never been sexually intimate with anyone else. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? He, uh, he writes, my wife knows uh, I feel a lot of shame about it. Uh, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I feel like a failure as a husband and as a man. You know, I hope, I hope you listen to this episode and hear about how Karen talked about feeling like a fraud and know that we all feel that way. Um, at least the people that listen to this show, I know, feel that way. Maybe there's some people out there that never feel that way, but um, I feel that way a lot and you're not alone and I just want to give you a big hug. This email came from a uh, a woman who calls herself Laura. And uh, she writes, I'm a crisis clinician who basically goes and assesses folks when they are suicidal, homicidal, or psychotic, as well as I do admissions and run groups in a voluntary short-term inpatient crisis stabilization unit. I will say I have totally ripped you off and done fear and love off groups in the crisis unit, and the patients have fucking loved it. Um, that makes me so happy to hear that. 
In my job, I deal with folks when they get pretty far beyond the state of okay, and I decide when and if they are no longer able to make safe decisions for themselves. Everyone should know that, at least in most states, uh, I'm in Tennessee, therapists like myself are out there who will meet you at the ER if you are suicidal and help figure out what kind of care is best for you at that moment. Sometimes it's as drastic as an involuntary commitment to a psych hospital for a few days of evaluation and treatment, and sometimes it is just an outpatient appointment. Voluntary Crisis Stabilization Units, CSUs, are the in-between. There, patients get evaluated for meds for two to four days, do therapy groups, and have a safe place with peers who are going through similar situations. The level of care needed in that moment of assessment at an emergency room is my clinical judgment call, but I always work in the patient's best interest and in good faith. I encourage everyone to familiarize themselves with what crisis services are available in their state. Usually this can be done through the state government website. Also, 211 is a fabulous resource, dialing 211 from a landline. Uh, which I know you you have mentioned on your podcast. A lot of times there are resources for counseling, meds, and especially crisis services for folks without insurance. This is something I've heard mentioned as a barrier on the podcast. I listened to the Ed Krasnick episode today, which is fucking amazing, by the way. Um, I do deal with mental illness myself, and I find your podcast so crucial in my daily life lately. I try to share what I can with patients in the CSU, as well as with my ridiculously well-adjusted husband, who does not always understand what I deal with. I just am so thrilled to have your episodes tucked in my iPhone. They never fail to either make me laugh, a real belly laugh, not, not fake bullshit, or bring tears to my eyes, often both. I am tired of the squeaky clean clinical education about mental illness and how to treat it. I want the real shit. I want people to know that I know what it feels like. And I'm not just some therapist who will tell them some canned platitudes and cognitive reframes. Thank you. Never stop. Love and hugs, Laura. That really warmed my heart. Really, really warmed my heart. I wanted to share that with you guys because I figure you want to know stuff that warms my heart. So, taking it out with um, from the Happy Moments survey. This is from a woman who calls herself Ava, and she's in her 30s. And she writes, After a traumatic event in my life, I basically holed up and didn't go outside or interact with people very much for years. During that time, my health started to decline as well. My doctor, a hematologist, decided to run a battery of tests for various blood diseases and cancer. Everything turned out mostly okay, but they still monitor my blood on a regular basis. Nonetheless, it really shook me up. A few months after going through all those tests, I went on a walk one day in my neighborhood. There was a moment as I was walking that it hit me how luckily, how lucky I was to be alive. Simply breathing and being able to do something as simple as walking was truly a miracle. I cried most of that walk. I also marveled at everything around me. Since I hadn't been outside much in the previous years, everything looked so fresh, new, and vibrant. Almost as if I was seeing for the first time in my life. Every leaf, every flower, every blade of grass was simply astounding to me. I forgot how captivating clouds looked, shifting and moving above me in the sky. Birds had beautiful melodies to sing and a playfulness. I couldn't get enough of it. It was one of the happiest moments of my life. It was the first time I truly appreciated and felt the weight of what it means to be alive. What a beautiful moment to go out on. Thank you. 
Thank you for that, Ava. And um, thank you guys for listening and supporting and coming out in Portland and um, helping me create this this really cool community that that I love and really feeds really feeds my soul. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, you're not alone. There is hope. You just got to get out of your comfort zone and ask for help. So, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.